And then I picked up on Netflix and realized that Netflix were doing something really different. And then realized that companies like Bridgewater and NextJump and Decurion were really at the edge of the scale when it came to culture development. And I thought, I need to understand this. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and my special guest today is Brett Potter. Brett is an expert on company culture development. He's the founder and CEO of Culture Gene, which is a culture leadership platform helping high growth companies build strong functional cultures. Prior to founding Culture Gene, Brett ran an international executive search firm working with high growth tech companies to expand their senior executive teams in Europe and the US. Brett is the author of two books. So his first book is Culture Decks Decoded, which was published in 2018. And his second book is called Own Your Culture, How to Define, Embed, and Manage Your Company Culture. And that was published just recently in September 2020. He also has a popular blog and is a sought after speaker. Brett, welcome and thanks for being here. Mark, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. Awesome. So listen, let's start real basic. Like, can you define company culture, first of all, and why it is important for, especially for for growth companies? Yeah. So my definition or the definition I like of company culture is the way we do things around here, which is quite a an all-encompassing thing, but that's that's deliberate because company culture really is the DNA of your organization and it drives everything. It drives sales, it drives marketing, it drives how we behave, it drives our communication, et cetera, et cetera. So company culture for me is the way we do things around here. And it's so important right now because where we are and how our companies are changing and how we're adapting to these changes at this time of pandemic is really driven around our culture. And the most important thing for most of your your listeners to think about is that their culture is degrading over time in most cases because they relied on the office to define, embed, and maintain their culture. Those four walls were often what was responsible for company culture in the past. Mm, Okay, interesting. And so definitely we want to dig into how that shifted and, and how to maintain your culture and avoid it degrading in a sort of remote or hybrid work environment. Um, Before we get into that though, like, Staying with this theme, company culture, I, I mean, lots of people talk about it, especially the the people I coach or, or interview who have, you know, companies they've been able to grow from sort of startup and then they've, they've, they've scaled the business. They all talk about company culture and how important it is. And yet at the same time, it seems quite like an intangible thing that, you know, entrepreneurs talk about, but, you know, very few can actually describe how they went about designing that culture, how they maintain it. Um, You know, and what's interesting about your work is you talk about codifying the culture development process. Could you speak a little on that and what that really means? Yeah, so um, I, um, over the last four years, I've gone about really understanding what company culture is. And you're right, it's this invisible, subconscious, intangible thing that happens mainly below the surface. And most leaders don't really know what to do about it. Most leaders want to build a strong functional culture, but they don't actually know how to do that. And so I decided to to really do a deep dive and understand this. So I went out with the aim of interviewing um leaders who had developed strong functional cultures where it, where you could see the culture was in was clearly demonstrated lived in action and that that culture was um acted upon by the company not the the culture acting upon the company if you understand mm-hmm. the way the, the way i mean so actually i've i've interviewed i had to speak to 500 companies to get to interview 50 plus leaders and I then did a lot of research into the different books that have been written about it, the, 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 the sort of the real godfather of culture, culture like uh, Edgar Schein, Charles Handy, really digging into these, these people and, and what they saw in company culture and took what I've read and built a process to help companies define, embed, and manage their culture. And as a, as a culture consultancy com- company, we use software to help our clients 
define their culture, embed their culture, and manage their culture over time. Interesting. Um, let me just check on a couple of things you said. You mentioned a couple of godfathers. One is Charles Handy, who I've uh, I've heard of. What was the first name that you gave? Edgar Schein. Edgar Ed Edgar Schein. Schein. Okay. Yeah, he, Interesting. He's, he's really probably the, um, the, the person that I tip my hat to the most in terms of giving me the structure um, almost a framework within which to think about culture in a, in a different way, where it is it is measurable and manageable. So, um, and then it's really interesting, you interviewed 50 leaders. Like, what was that process of discovery? Because, you know, as I, I interviewed, that's one of the things I love about my podcast is I get to interview leaders. Um, and sometimes they're good at explaining how they've, done something and sometimes they're not sometimes they don't know really how they have done what they've done and so if you're interviewing people to try and figure out how effective or functional i guess with the word you you use functional cultures uh are created to what extent were they conscious of what they've done and to what extent did you have to really probe to find what were the actual factors that made a difference that's a really really good quick question um, so I, I started interviewing leaders and what I would do is I'd be introduced to somebody who said this, you know, they've got a great culture, go and talk to Jackie. And so I'd schedule a time to talk to Jackie and we talk about values possibly. And we talk about mission and vision. And then we might talk a little bit about what they are doing around rewarding or recognizing. But in most cases, that's where the conversation ended because the culture then kind of just happened by default. And it was when I started talking to companies where I, you know, I could ask about the layers of the onion of company culture that allowed me to go deeper into their what they'd done. So, if you know, when I interviewed Mark Organ, who is the founder of Influitive, he, you know, he, we spent an hour and a half during the first interview. We weren't finished yet, and we spent another hour and a half, and we still weren't finished yet. And you could just see as I asked the questions how we got deeper and deeper and deeper into the layers of the onion. And that's where I started to realize that some leaders had taken this over and above where others had, where most had actually. So nine out of 10 companies have not done, either they've done a very poor job or not done anything about defining their culture. So the 10% that have, about half of that, 5% have really done a good job where they've, you can see they've read and invested time in in, in in embedding it into their company and they are deliberate about it. They treat it like a function in the same way that you treat sales like a function or marketing like a function or engineering like a function. Mm -hmm. And that's really the fundamental difference. Yeah. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Actually, look, before we go too deep here, I want to make sure that we sell this concept because like some people might be listening going, well, this doesn't really apply to me. We're just a small business or, you know, I want to make sure that the, payoff is clear like what do you see as being the benefits of making that um this a priority and actually investing the the time required to design your culture rather than just have one by default so a um an investor in the u.s coined this phrase uh, a guy named david cummings and he said company culture is the one sustainable competitive advantage that you have complete control over. Mm. In most companies now, that is the case. There is, There are some cases where there is IP or there is brand that has been built over time. But in most companies that start up now, it's about your team, your idea, and how you execute. And the thing that is the glue for your team is your company culture. And if you don't have that glue really strong, really super glued in, then the team will, you know, your culture will degrade and the team will leave or, you know, they won't get the right behaviors. You won't hire the right people to join your company. You won't hire against value the values of your company because you don't know what they are. And so if you think about this thing as the one sustainable competitive advantage that only, frankly, you can impact both positively and negatively internally in the company, then it's something that, you know, as is an if you haven't defined your culture, it's an, it's an asset that your if your competition have, they'll be able to position themselves better. They'll be able to recruit uh, more competitively. They'll be able to drive their team to achieve more because people want to be at their company. They are fulfilling their potential at that company. 
there's so many elements of this that, and I'm sure you've seen this, Mark, in the companies you 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 work with and and consult with and and and, and advise that you can see when a company has that extra special element of company culture. Totally. I mean, so outward signs to me would be um, they're much more attractive. People want to be part of this, you know, this company. Uh, so they find it easier to attract talent. They have better retention and higher performance. I mean, those are some key, I suppose, signs that they've got it right. Um, and whereas the opposite, I suppose, is also true that you can sort of I don't know, you can sort of sense when a company, it, there's something lacking or something broken with the culture in terms of the, you know, the, the morale or the esprit de corps, the, the staff turnover might be higher. And But the, the thing is, it's not necessarily that the owner or the, I mean, nobody starts a company and thinks I'm going to have a bad culture. Like I want this to be a rubbish place to work. I don't want people to believe in what we're doing or buy into our mission. Nobody thinks like that, right? Because so it's not... I don't think um, that people set out to, you know, have a, a poor company culture or at least not an, an effective one. Uh, so why do you think that happens that like some companies really just it, this glue is there and, and others uh, it's just absent? So what I've seen is the because culture develops as we learn success in a company, Culture becomes this random combination of good and bad behaviors, habits, norms, principles, processes, procedures, communication styles, et cetera, et cetera. And we learn these over time. And because in the beginning, it's really quite hard, you're just struggling to stay above water. In most cases, we're not thinking about this. And so what I see is the best companies think about their values and mission and vision early. And the best companies really are very intentional about it. Um, and maybe it's because they have this natural gift around, you know, being more people centric and more considerate about their, the, the people in the culture they want to build and the glue they want to build, or they've been fortunate to work at a company where a, a strong culture was demonstrated to them. Mm. So what I, what I see is the companies that have leaders that care a little bit more, more empathetic are thinking along these lines Mm-hmm. And the companies that maybe have a little bit more time, not all of the startups that I work with have that much time. So actually getting them to really make time for this is quite a big step. Yeah. But if you don't make it, then it, it forms by default and it can form in a negative way as, as we see. In some companies, what I do see is that the leaders really at about 15 or 20, 25 people as they're starting to scale, they realize that they don't have as much control or dominance over the culture. Um, and now that we have people spread around remotely and you're hiring remotely, you know, you don't have that much say or impact or, or, or control over the environment. So I think that those leaders who realize that and adapt and start investing in it are the ones that prepare themselves for the success and for those it, it sort of the right environment. There, there is, you know, I've I've worked with companies where I wouldn't want to work in that culture, but it's exactly the right culture for them and the people they hire. So there's no right or wrong culture. It's either right. strong and functional, weak or dysfunctional. Okay, I hadn't thought of it that way before. So you're saying that um, I would I naturally just assume that some cultures are better. Like everybody would want to work at. A certain type of culture, but you're saying that actually is what was your defi- uh, it's strong and strong and functional and weak, functional. What, or what do you mean by strong and functional? So strong, a, a strong culture is where you, the team, understand the culture, the values, the mission, and the vision. It's clearly lived by the leadership team and demonstrated and modeled by the leadership team, and it's embedded into the environment. It's almost you live the culture, but you don't even have to think about it. A weak dysfunction, sorry, and a functional culture is where the culture actually accelerates the business. So, so you can get a situation where a a culture a, a, you can have a strong culture, but it's a political environment, and the political environment is dysfunctional towards the strength of the culture. Right. So you've got so you can have strong dysfunctional or weak functional. 
but it's around making sure that a it's communicated and understood and the culture is accelerating or oiling the cogs of the engine got it all right okay that's interesting i had not thought of that at all how did you come to this work like it's it it's not I don't know. It's not something I would have even thought of. How did you go from being the managing partner of an executive search firm to then specializing in this and and writing books about it? Well, I was lucky enough uh, about five years ago now to work with three companies almost in a row where the leaders had a very strong understanding of their culture. And so I was asked to find candidates for these roles that match the skills, experience, and the values of the company. Mm-hmm. And it's hard enough, as you know, to, to, to find candidates at the best of times. Now finding candidates that had the values match made the searches much harder and much longer, mm. which, which I didn't frankly appreciate initially. But the outcomes of the interview process was really where the lights went on for me because that in one case, it was like that these two people had been dancing tango for 10 years. And they weren't same. They weren't the same. They weren't similar. But the way they operated from a values perspective and understood the market and understood what was important to themselves and the company just demonstrated to me, wow, there's something different here. And then the outcomes of those people joining those companies was tremendous. It was you could just see the way they accelerated inside the business and changed the, the culture for the better. And another to go back to the uh, that point about. Not every culture is right for you. I worked with a company called HPI, which was part of a much bigger group called Solera. Solera exited for $6 billion. So success by all accounts. But Solera was run by an ex-Navy SEAL. And if you didn't operate in that kind of way of military, regimented, structured, um, very, very demanding and almost Navy SEAL-like, that system spat you out. And so... That that was one of the really good demonstrations for me of placing a person in that company where they weren't, they weren't, they didn't have a military background, but they, their system, the way they thought and the way they approached things and their values overlapped really well with that company. And they they went on to be very successful and the company obviously was very successful. Mm. So you had this um, experience running these searches and you had the good fortune of working with companies where this was clear. It was part of the selection process was the values match and so on. But then how did that prompt you to say, you know, aha, I'm going to become an expert on culture and, and, and you know, build a business around it? Well, I, I'm, I'm a, a curious, uh, I'm inquisitive. So I'd, I'd never seen, and it was lucky that there were three companies in a row that almost in a row that I saw this happen, but I'd never seen that kind of search. You know, this was uh, probably 13, 14 years into my search career where I'd done hundreds of searches and interviewed thousands of candidates, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd never had that happen. And I think if it was just one company, it would have been okay. But the fact that these three companies had this really different experience for me made me realize that, oh, okay, this is missing in the startup world. And then when I started interviewing mm-hmm. people, I realized actually this is missing globally. Nine out of 10 companies do not have a strong, functional, well-defined culture. And so I then wanted to find out what it was, why it was, because this was, you know, I, I having read about uh, Southwest Airlines, Zappos, um, Nordstrom, Virgin and other companies that really worked on their culture. I knew there was something different, but mm. I didn't know what it was. And then I got, I sort of picked up on Netflix and realized that Netflix were doing something really different. And then realized that companies like Bridgewater and Next Jump and Decurion were really at the edge of the scale when it came to culture development. And I thought, I need to understand this. And so that's where I started putting the pieces of the puzzle together for our process. Interesting. That's amazing. You mentioned Zappos and and Tony Shea just died like two days ago, which is a real shame. I think he was, how old is he? 40 or something or? Yeah, 46, I think. Yeah. 46. And uh, so I remember reading the book, um, what is it called? Uh, something many, uh, something about happiness. Um, Delivering happiness. Delivering happiness. That was it. That was it. Yeah. And and he really focused on culture in that book. So that definitely had a had an impact on me. Me too. Uh, but that's that's interesting how you you know how you how you got onto this. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth 
and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. In a moment, I do want to pursue the, the open loop that you mentioned right at the beginning, which is how we address this topic in a remote kind of environment like many companies are operating right now. But first, like, can we make this really practical? Like, okay, so just to put this in context, the majority of my audience are um, recruiters, recruitment business owners. And, um, you know, if they're, if they're so far buying in, they're saying, this sounds like exactly what, you know, maybe they've already had similar thoughts, but they've not known how to proceed in terms of creating their culture. Like, what is the first step in in this journey in order to really do something practical here that is going to create a strong and functional culture? So the first step is the CEO must get it. If the CEO doesn't get it, then it's then you just it's just uphill. Um, so let's assume the CEO gets it and realizes, you know, we've got a great culture here. I'm feeling a little bit like we need to invest in this because we're going to grow, or maybe maybe things don't feel right at the moment, or maybe people feel, you know, now that we're spread all over the place, it feels like our culture is degrading. Whatever it is, the first thing to do is to start by defining your values. And that doesn't mean the CEO goes and writes down the values and says, here they are, take it or leave it. That means you go through a process of involving the team or involving members of the team if you've got hundreds of people, but you involve members of the team and you involve as many members as possible to give you their thoughts on two things. First of all, what the actual current culture is. And secondly, what the aspirational culture is. Leaders are thinking aspirational all the time. So they hope, they wish, or they would like this, the, you know, us to be um, uh, candid and you know, open and all of these things that frankly people are not. And so it, understanding the difference between where you currently are and where you are aspirationally means that you can combine your those things and create a culture that can move towards where you want to be aspirationally. Um, and, and what I try and do with my clients is try and understand what the potential impediments of actually executing this culture are. So what's stopping you from doing this? But the first thing is, define your values and include your team in that process. And then the most important thing to do where most leaders fail and most culture programs fail is define the expected behaviors against your values. If you don't do this, your values are open to interpretation. So let me give you an example, Mark. What if, if, if we were running a company and one of our values was teamwork, what would you what what is your interpretation? What do you think teamwork is? What what's you know what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? Oh, putting me in the spot here. I would think it is um, people working towards a common goal and a collaborative manner, rather than um, you know, and that there's good communication and people are um, have have complementary skills um, that, I don't know, something along those lines. So complementary skills, good open communication, working towards a common goal. That's, and that's right. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer here. But in, if, we, if we hadn't had this conversation, you wouldn't know that I think teamwork is the team always coming first. Ah, okay. What does that mean? So what that means is, in my case, the team always comes first. So I will always think about the team first. 
with before the customer, before everything. Okay. Before before anything outside of the team. Now now that's if we don't if we're working on the same team, we could actually end up making different decisions based on the same set of stimuli because my interpretation is slightly different to your interpretation. Mm-hmm. So what I do with my clients is I say, okay, here we've defined the values. Now we need to define the expected behaviors because if we don't do that, those expected the, the values remain open to interpretation. So by defining right. our our values, we have expect and what they mean. We can say, okay, these are the behaviors we expect to see from you, and you know there's there is some room for interpretation, but a whole lot less. And mm-hmm. the problem with human beings is we are actually designed to interpret for ourselves first. Then if we want to think about it, we'll interpret for the other person. And then if we want to th- think about it, we'll interpret for the company. But what this does is it gives you a framework to say, okay, these are our values. This is what we expect from them. And this is what you can expect from us as leaders of the business. And that's where most companies fail. As I mentioned, they don't define their behaviors associated with their values because you can then mm. reward and recognize behaviors. You can train for them. You can hire against them. You can promote against them. You can fire against them. You can do all sorts of things once you have behaviors in place. Could you give an example of that? Cause I'm having trouble wrapping my brain around. I, I understand values perfectly. It's something I've thought about for a long time. Um, both personal values as well as, you know, then, you know, extrapolating company values. And I get what you're saying about the behaviors, but I'm, I'm, my brain's not latching onto an example. Sure. Sure. So let's go back to our example of, of teamwork. If we say one of our values is teamwork and we expect, say one of our expected behaviors is the team always comes first. Okay. Now what we do is, is we can evaluate, are you, behaving in the team as if the team comes first are you demonstrating that mm-hmm. and when we when we when we recruit for example i would I, the interview question i would create for that is the value is teamwork the expected behavior is the team always comes first the interview question is when last did you take one for the team and why and that is a very hard interview question to 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 fudge because yeah, I can I can ask a, you. It's based on an actual behavior. Where and if you lie about that behavior, I will know because I can I could interview for another half an hour on that on that question alone. You know what happened? What was the right. impact? How did you plan for it? What did you learn from it? Who did you impact? And how did you deal with that? Because you took one for the team, and why? I want to know what your thinking was. Why you think you thought you needed to take one for the team? Were you dealing with a boss who was mm-hmm. like that, or was this just a new scenario? And I can extrapolate on that interview question for half an hour if I want to. I don't, mm-hmm. but it gives me what I then do is it gives me the opportunity to create four or five or six or seven of these questions associated with our values and behaviors, and then interview each candidate and ask them exactly the same question, and then score Mm. each candidate on the vividness and the believability of their answers. And now Mm. I've got a a data versus gut instinct. So, So this is where we're moving from claiming to be able to hire for culture fit, which is impossible, to being able to hire for values fit, which is very possible. Ah, no. That, okay, this. Let's get into this. This is interesting. First, though, let me just make sure I understand. So, the behavior is essentially defining what that value means in real terms. So, like, because the value, let's say teamwork, people have different interpretations of what teamwork is or what it means, and so the by defining it further based on um, the behavior, then it's clear to everybody what teamwork means in this company. Exactly. It's very clear to what teamwork means in this company, and there's yeah. no room for interpretation. And actually, because we are because we are um, committed to this, we will then hold one another to account. So, so let me give you an, an, an actual example. So, Netflix in my book Culture Dex Decoded, I use Netflix quite a lot because that was the granddaddy of of Culture Dex, and they did such a good job. In Netflix, wait, what? Sorry to interrupt. What's a Culture Deck? So, sorry, a culture deck is, so let me rewind. In 2009, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, got irritated with with doing a presentation, 
it's a 125-page slide deck presentation to the people that, that were part of the onboarding process. And half of the people, after they'd listened to his presentation, would want to leave the company. So he would got frustrated. <laughs> he just said, they just said, no, 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 we're not going to work like that. We're, we're uncomfortable working like that. And so they, they, he decided actually, instead of communicating this, he was going to put this deck and call it a culture deck online. So he put, put it on SlideShare. And it's been, I think the last time I viewed, it's been, it's been viewed over 20 million times on SlideShare. Wow. And Cheryl, Sa- Cheryl Sandberg said it's the, it's the most important document to ever come out of Silicon Valley. Huh. And it's, okay. it is very specific about what the culture is. So, for example, they list their nine, their nine values mm-hmm. and they define the nine values. So, for example, in the case of one of their values is honesty. And, mm-hmm. and the behaviors are you are known for candor and directness. Mm-hmm. You are non-political when you agree with others. You only say things about fellow employees you will say to their face. And you are quick to admit mistakes. Those are the four expectations against the word honesty and they've done it for each one of their values Mm -hmm. so now you have you have this very powerful way of describing in a document put online um, that anybody can read so if you read the document you want your if your culture is is a strong functional culture it is magnet powerfully magnetic that it should attract you and be it should be able to attract the, the right people and repulse the wrong people. And that's actually what Reed Hastings found is that his culture deck, when he read it out, was half of the people were not wanting to stay in the company because actually they're very deliberate about how they work. They're a sports team. They're not a family. They're not a company. They behave like a sports team. They expect excellence. If you are not excellent, they'll put you on the bench. They'll help you get better. They'll help you try and, they'll try and work out why you want being excellent. But if you aren't excellent for a period of time, they will fire you. So they're very honest about this in their culture deck. So in this, in, so what this, what what this culture deck um, does is is it is is it essentially it allows um, your you to communicate your culture to your team and people externally. So they work out: Do I want to work with you or not? Do I? You know, should I even bother wasting our time uh, because I'm? Am I interested in your culture or not? Brilliant. Okay, now I understand the title of your last book, Culture Dex Decoded. That makes more sense to me now. All right, brilliant. So now you said something interesting, which is that it's impossible to hire for culture fit. Could you elaborate on that for us? Yeah. So when um, when investors or or founders or CEOs talk about culture fit, a small little piece of me dies every time, and I'm not sure how long I, how long I last because people use this a lot. But actually, when somebody says mm. I you know I can hire for culture fit, then I then I yeah. ask them how, I ask them to please accurately describe their culture, and that stops people in their tracks because they can't accurately describe their culture. And, and the reason for that is your culture is changing all the time. It's this invisible, subconscious, intangible thing. It happens below the surface. And most people haven't done the, made the investment to define their culture as best they can. So if you can't describe your culture, what are you interviewing against when you claim to be able to hire for culture fit? You're actually interviewing against your gut instinct. And the problem with your gut right. instinct is it's open to interpretation. It is... Um, you know, it's yours. It's it's based on your feelings. It's 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 movable. It's a movable feast. One day to the next. If you're in a bad mood, then this doesn't work. You also, it's hard to. It, it's possible, but it's very hard to build a communal gut gut instinct, and that communal gut instinct is not reliable if you do manage to do it. The last point about hiring for culture fit is if you hire for somebody when your company is the site is ten people. You work in a certain way. You operate in a certain way. If you grow quickly and you grow to 100, the person who enjoyed that 10-person culture may not enjoy your 100-person culture. Mm. But if you hire for values and you do a good job of defining your values, then your values remain more relatively constant over time. So now you have a consistent and a constant element to recruit against to make sure that the people who join your company are are in your company for the right reasons and, you know, to, to fulfill their potential and to do well, to, to bring their full selves to work. It makes total sense that, thank you for clearing that up for me. I've wondered that for, for a long time is 
when companies say we're uh, we want to hire the right culture fit, um, what that really means, and if if they are indeed doing that, they're probably doing it based on the values and the behaviors rather than the culture in general terms. So, um, excellent. Most, so, well, I I think I've got enough. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, so I was just going to say most 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 people are not hiring are not hiring for values because they haven't got they haven't gone through the process. Right, right. And the people hiring for culture fit are using a phrase, a lazy phrase. Yes, exactly. In fact, they may be deluding themselves that they're hiring for culture when really they're just, it's personal bias and gut feel. That's exactly right. Okay. So let's then go back to this very critical point about the danger of the company culture degrading in the current climate because people are working remotely. And so how do we address this issue in a remote or even a hybrid work environment, which like realistically is going to be the case for a while and we may never go back to a fully office-based culture. So like what, how can we sustain and develop a culture when everyone, when people aren't physically together? Yeah. So this is, this is a question that I'm, I'm asked numerous times at the moment and it's understandable because um, most leaders, as I mentioned in in the early stages, most leaders relied on their company um, environment and as in their offices to actually maintain their culture. Um, they relied yes. on the osmosis that happened by people talking to one another in at, in you know over lunch or having a coffee together or bumping into one another in the lift or those water cooler moments as they typically called. And they relied on the informal communication happening through that trickle down effect, which in some cases had bottlenecks, but it still kind of worked. Not, not didn't, didn't always work. They relied on people having the proximity. They relied on being able to read people's um, body language and work out, you know, what kind of mood are they in. They relied on being able to get together to, brainstorm into whiteboard they relied on the the availability of people and the visibility of people to know when you could have a meeting or when you should have a meeting or when you perhaps shouldn't have a meeting they relied on all of these things that were part of the culture and those things are now gone and what i actually do with my clients is i encourage them to have a to actually grieve and mourn and actually have a funeral for pre-COVID work. And how mm. we do that is we, we actually write down what we liked about pre-COVID work, what we didn't like about pre-COVID work, and then we say goodbye to it because it's like we just moved from Earth where we, where we didn't have to worry about it, and now we've gone to the moon. And <laughs> gravity is different. There is no oxygen. We, we can't run anymore. We've got to jump. And this is the reality. And so what... And if you don't have this conversation with your team, your team are always thinking about how it was. Your team are comparing whatever you do from a culture perspective to actually how it was. So if we try and build social connection digitally, it doesn't feel the same as meeting in the pub. But that's And that's impossible. So if you're always thinking about, well, this isn't great in comparison to meeting in the pub, then you're never going to get any digital social connection right because everybody's going to be negative about it. So you really have mm. to have this, This you know, you've got to have the ceremony. You've got to have the funeral and move on. That's the first thing. The second thing is if you haven't defined your culture, if you haven't worked on your values, your mission, and your vision, now you have to do it and you have to really double down on this because this is the glue and your glue is degrading because your culture is degrading. They don't have that osmosis anymore. They don't have those interactions. And some companies are doing this better than others. The companies that did work on their culture pre-COVID are, are finding it hard, but not as hard. So you start with your values and your mission and your vision. And then there are essentially nine best practices that companies that are remote work by that are over and above what we would typically expect to. So, so the, these nine best practices are um, something that leaders of, of, of remote companies had to work on because they didn't have an office. So first of all, they were deliberate about their culture because they needed that. They needed to build the glue. 
and then focus on communication because communication is is the oxygen and moving from synchronous to asynchronous communication is how to think about this. Right. Remote companies detail and are much more deliberate about process in the organization because they need more. They, are, they, they give their teams more structure, both on a daily or a weekly basis. So when are we going to have downtime? When are we going to have deep thinking time? When are we going to have meeting time? Yeah. They, they really double down on social connection because that's part of the glue. They invest heavily in building documentation. Um, and documentation for a company like GitLab, which has 1,300 employees that are fully remote, is a competitive advantage. They see it right. as a competitive advantage for the company. Yeah. Um, they work on they work on trust. So they mm-hmm. enable, they develop, they build trust, mainly through transparency. Most of these companies lean towards transparency. Mm-hmm. They focused on results and outcomes rather than hours worked. And this allows them to be less micromanagement and allows them to 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 build that trust in the organization. And the last one is recruitment and onboarding. So you mm-hmm. you 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 recruit the people who are going to strengthen your culture or degrade your culture, and you onboard and demonstrate your culture for the first time during onboarding. So those are the nine best practices that remote companies focus on. Brilliant. Thank you so much for explaining that. And this is actually very relevant to me, Brett. Um, My COO, Leanne, uh, is in Nottingham. I hired her during the pandemic. We've never met. Um, and my executive assistant, Rachel, uh, has worked for me for two years, but she's based in the Philippines. We have never met. And I, uh, so this is something I'm, you know, very, very interested in is how to, uh, build a, um, a successful business entirely remotely. Uh, and that, you know, has, a an, um, a strong and functional culture, as you've said. So, Really, really good stuff. I can see you've spent a lot of time thinking about this um, and you're very good at explaining it. What? Let me take you out of your comfort zone for a minute. The The theme of the show is the resilient recruiter. Can you talk briefly about what has been one of your most challenging experiences or, um, you know, an adversity that you had to overcome? Is that in what I do or over the years? Um, I, either one, whichever feels like a better, like what you would find most relevant to talk about. Well, that's a whole, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair no, enough. The, 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 I think that, I think um, me personally, I'm, um, I, I work, I work very hard on uh, dealing, uh, accepting criticism. I'm not very good mm. at it, and it's been I've been I've had that issue uh, my whole life. It's been mm. uh, it's been something that I have to be very deliberate about. And I, for example, um, after this podcast, will ask you for your feedback and ask you to criticize me um, in a in a constructive way if you can, mm-hmm. um, and have a couple of questions around that because it's this is something that I have to it's it's a muscle I have to develop in terms of. My challenges around the business. I think um, I've I've had to learn the hard way that if if the CEO delegates this too much, then 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 I, then then I I shouldn't be working with the company. Um, mm. If the CEO thinks that HR should do this or the COO should do this, and they will sort of tap in and out, it doesn't work because I. I actually invariably change the way when I work with a company, I change the way the CEO communicates. I change the way they evaluate and, and, and recognize certain things. So that, 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 that's been, that's been, that was a very tough thing to go through and learn um, with a client. Um, in, in what way, Brett, like what, what made it tough? Well, because the CEO really is the person who sets the culture. And yeah. and if you if you are if they are not fully bought into the values and the mission and the behaviors and they behave in a sort of a way that is inconsistent with those they actually break down they break what you're doing. So mm. if, you know if if you if if you say the team always comes first but the CEO doesn't behave like the team always comes first and doesn't recognize the team always coming first and doesn't reward or measure the team always coming first. In other words, do these things that a leader should do to embed the culture. 
then you end up in a situation where you're where there's you know they always they will always go to what the CEO wants and what how the CEO behaves um, because the CEO ultimately is going to reward and recognize. Brett, you're you're speaking in general terms here, but I get the sense that this uh, knowledge comes from a. Uh, one or more painful experiences. Are you able to share a little more without naming names? Yeah. So this this uh, was a software company, uh, sixty people. Um, I I actually had met the CEO in a previous in a previous well while I was a recruiter and uh, got on well um, with them at that stage. And the CEO, this the, but the COO was the one who's really keen to do this and was the one who really understood this and got it. Um, and so the COO and I planned the process out. We um, started the process. We defined the values, the behaviors. Um, we then started to, to begin the communication process and start to work with the leadership team. And when and I, you know, I give I give the leadership team a framework. So I do that for the CEO, the COO, and it's basically a framework of every 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 week. This is how you need to review your culture. And and the C the the CEO then had to sort of measure and, and pay attention to certain things, and he didn't, and he didn't, he didn't really follow through on everything. So that so his leadership team were initially confused, but then were not confused because they just started to ignore me. And then the COO came to me and said, "Look, Brett, this isn't landing. The CEO CEO doesn't feel he has the time, um, doesn't feel he's committed to this." Um, I still want to do it, but you know, it's let's let's just agree to disagree and move on. And um, I've actually since then worked with a COO in a CEO position since then, and it's it's gone amazingly. So, but that was it was very painful because I only work with 10, 10 companies a year, and I want to work with the companies that I know I'm going to move the needle for, but also I know I'm going to get on with, and yes. I know we're going to see eye to eye. And so I I've, I've only had to learn that experience once. Got it. So the the moral of the story is the CEO has to own this particular um, process of of culture development. I think it's possible. I, I do have I do have a client who I'm doing a lot of work with their um, uh, head of people. Yeah. But 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 every single time I need the CEO to do something or to act on something or to communicate something or to change, you know the. It, it's done or we discuss it mm. and work out how to do it right it. Uh, for the company. You know, it's, it's a, a lot of the operational stuff, the CEO is not needed. So mm-hmm. getting a group of people together for a, for a workshop, I don't need the C- CEO there, but I do need the CEO to comment on what's come out of the workshop and to help guide me in terms of how they want the culture based on what the team is saying. So there's, there's, the, there's the balance that you've got to find and they're having the, the CEO bought in, and involved is really critical. Got it. Absolutely. That makes sense. Um, and I think, you know, this applies for many things, not just uh, culture where you need the, the the right people involved in the process for it to work. Um, tell me about having lunch with Nelson Mandela. <laughs> yeah, I, I was very fortunate Um I, I, years and years ago, when I was actually still in South Africa, I worked. Um, I did some. I did some work with a, a company called Moyers. I don't know if they changed their name now, but they they did a lot of baking products. So um, they did um, uh, jellies and cake mixes and that sort of thing. And um, I uh, had a, a um, an employee who was part of a. Um, an African church, so an independent church. And she said that they, there was a choir competition happening. So the choirs from all around the country would get together and there were some children's choirs and different choirs. And could we arrange Moyers to donate something uh, to the, to the, um, uh, to, to, to the church for these you know, really big group of choirs that were coming together. So I got Moyers to donate jelly and, cake mix and that and actually my colleague said would you like to come along Mande- Nelson Mandela will be there and I said I'd love to and then actually the bishop invited us to sit at his table and have lunch with him because of the you know the experience that the children had with the cake and everything it was just it was a, a, it was a very 
it was an amazing experience. Actually, it's one of the few times I feel like I've been in the presence of a greater being, like wow. not a human being. You really just unbelievably calming and unbelievably and and so you know you know heard my name once mentioned it a bunch of times and really dug into you know what i did how we did it and thank you very much and just a really wonderful leader you know i i think i think about the likes of nelson mandela and compare them compare him to our leaders now and i I just crawl up in a ball and want to cry. <laughs> yeah, you said it. So wait, let me just try and picture this scene. So your company donated cakes and, and things for this event. and But you were not only at the same table, but you actually interacted with Nelson Mandela? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like that. He didn't, you know, he, I mean, we, it was a big table, but he made sure that um, he knew who was at the table and what, what their, you know, what their involvement was. So um, he was very, very good at that. And he'd obviously had a team working on it because my colleague and I were sitting there chatting and he came around, and, you know, was there was space made and we, we spoke to him. It was, it wow. was wonderful. It was absolutely That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Well, listen, um, we're out of time for today, Brett, but I am really glad that we did this and I will enjoy reading, you know, finishing the book, Own Your Culture. We'll put links where people can... Um, can buy the book uh, or your books, a plural, on our website. Of course, are available on Amazon as well as other uh, other booksellers. But uh, yeah, really enjoyed meeting you. Thanks for thanks for being on the show, Mark. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you. It's uh, it's been a pleasure, and um, I hope that uh, your listeners have uh, have got some value out of this. But I've really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.